Good morning. There was a man who lived many centuries ago. His name was Diogenes. Diogenes was from the philosophical school called the Cynics. He was a beggar by choice, a man committed to poverty, but he was often seen walking the streets of the cities of Greece in the ancient world carrying a lantern, candle inside. And if you ask where he was going, he would always say, I'm on the search for an honest man. His life overlapped the life of Alexander the Great, and it is said by legend that once Alexander made the comment that if I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. But there's nowhere in history where it's recorded that Diogenes returned the compliment. Looking for one honest man. We're in a series of messages from the book of Ezekiel. And you might say, Ezekiel? Why Ezekiel? Of all the books in the Bible, why Ezekiel? Because Ezekiel is a book written through a prophet to a generation of people who lived in a culture that hated everything they held dear. It is a book that teaches us how to live our faith in exile. How to live when the world around us is not on the same page with the, as us. Ezekiel has been incredibly relevant so far, the, the messages that we've seen, but, but we've, we've, we haven't done every story, every chapter, every message that Ezekiel was given. And, and so as we, as we pass over some things, I, I, I commonly say, well, we're going to skip over some judgment messages. But this morning, I want you to, to get a feel for exactly the kind of things that we're skipping over. Last week, we were in Ezekiel chapter 18, and Ezekiel 18 finishes with that appeal, that cry from God, repent and live. Immediately after saying that, issuing that invitation to the nation, God turns to the prophet in chapter 19, verse 1, and says, as for you, take up a song of mourning for the leaders of Israel. If we go to chapter 20, we see in a number of places, let me give some examples. Um, God begins in chapter 20 to recite the history of Israel, how he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And, and along the way, he says these things. In verse 7, as they came out of Egypt, he says, And I said to them, Throw away each of you the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not throw away each of them, the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they abandon the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them. It says that later God took them out of Egypt and they walked through the wilderness. Verse 13, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They rejected my ordinances, which if a person follows them, then he will live by them. And they greatly profaned my Sabbaths. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. Well, go down to verse 21. But the children 
rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to follow my ordinances, which, if a person follows them, then he will live by them. They profaned my Sabbaths, so I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to use up my anger against them. Verse 33, as I live, declares the Lord God, with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I assuredly shall be king over you. Chapter 21, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Jerusalem and speak prophetically against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Behold, I am against you. That's what we've skipped. It's a consistent message given to this prophet that God is not satisfied with the response of his people to the call that he's placed on their lives. When we come to chapter 22, we see even in chapter 22, those kinds of judgment messages are still being delivered. But I want us to look at the close of the chapter because at the end of chapter 22, we have another judgment message. But this one is unique because God is going to outline his methodical step-by-step process of looking through the different layers of leadership in a society, looking for someone who will provide leadership in the right way, who will speak truth, who will call the nation back to their God. This is a tragic, he's going to paint for us a picture of the tragic disintegration of every area of leadership within the culture. Five specific segments of society are going to be examined. And folks, please don't make me be any more specific than the text is about how this applies to us. This is not just a nice historical glance at a culture long gone by. This is uncomfortably relevant to 21st century America. Ezekiel chapter 22, beginning in verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not clean or rained on, in the day of indignation. You see, what had happened is, we know, this, we know the history of this story. We've, we've, we've seen it before. Babylon came and assaulted the nation of Judah. And in that first assault, they removed leadership, put puppet leadership in place in Jerusalem, the capital city. And they took a wave of captives or refugees away from Judah, the promised land, and resettled them as exiles in the land of Babylon. Now, what was supposed to happen is that the, the, the Israelites remaining in Judah were supposed to say, Oh, my stars, look at, what, look at what's happened. The judgment of God has come right to our doorstep. Our brothers and sisters have been carried off into, into slavery, into exile. We've got to get our house in order. But actually, the opposite is what happened. Because what they did was they said, you know, God's taken away the guilty ones. He's judged those people. But see, we're good. We're, we're, we're fine with God. But here, 
God now approaches that attitude and he says, tell them there's a reason why they're suffering. You see, because of the scorched earth policy that Babylon used, they had come five years earlier when they assaulted Jerusalem. They had this kind of scorched earth policy. They burned farmland. They devastated entire villages. They wiped out uh, uh, major agricultural centers. So what we have here is five years later, even though Babylon is gone, their army is gone, there's a drought and a, a famine uh, and all of the disease associated with lack of nutrition. That's what's happening in Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. But they still are telling themselves that, that, that we're good. This is just going to pass. There's nothing to be concerned about. We're, we're all okay here. God comes to the prophet and he says, I want you to give them a message. I want you to tell them that they're living in a day of indignation that's why the land is not clean and it hasn't been rained on. The early stages of the judgment of God was already unfolding in the remaining population of Judah. Now here's where this passage gets really interesting because God is going to say, if I just had a man, just one, who would stand up for what's true, who would stand in the gap, if you will, to prevent my wrath from coming in. If I could find one man, that would be enough. This image that we're going to see here of standing in the gap, it's a military picture. In the ancient world, when a city got to enough size, when it was no longer a village, but it was a city, they would build a wall. They would build military fortifications around the city as a, a part of their defenses. And when, when an army would come and, and lay siege or assault the city, the, the soldiers in the city could position themselves along the top of the wall, and they could fight no matter which direction the army came from. But what would happen is, if the army could somehow breach the wall, if they could, if they could force a, 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 a gap in the wall, what would happen is, instead of having to go over the wall, they could pass through the gap. And a gap in the wall meant that the enemy could flood in. Now, if you're a military commander and you're protecting a city like that and you've got people stationed along the wall, what happens is if you get the, the word that a gap in the wall has, has been created, there's a hole in the wall and the enemy is pouring in, here's what you do. You minimize the troops that you leave around the other parts of the wall and you maximize the military force at your disposal on that place. You redeploy men to the gap. Because you see, the wall works for your defenses, but if there's a gap in the wall, now the invading force can come in unchallenged unless you can fill the gap. That's the imagery that God has here. Only speaking in spiritual terms, he says, there's a gap, there's a hedge of protection around this people but because of their sin, a hole has developed in that wall, that hedge. And I'm searching for one man who will recognize the hole in the wall of protection and step in to fill the gap. That's this passage. Now God's going to systematically begin to analyze the society of Judah to see if he can find that. He's searching for just one man and he starts among her princes. Look in verse 25. 
There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Now, I just said princes, and this text in my translation says the word prophets. There is uh, some question, because the words are so similar in Hebrew, there's some question what, this, what, what that specific word is. I'm going to translate it princes because the description of verse 25 fits better with the category of princes. Plus, we're going to see the category of prophets show up again later in God's search. So let me read this verse again with that translation. There is a conspiracy of her princes in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives, they have taken treasure and precious things, and they have made many widows in the midst of her. Now, by translating this word princes, it's speaking about rulers or nobility, what we would call the ruling class. Now, in our nation, we don't have princes, we don't have royalty, we don't have a, a monarchy. So for us, the application here is those who are our elected officials, those who are in the positions of political power. He said, I looked in that category of society, the rulers, the, the ruling class, and instead of finding somebody standing for truth, instead of finding somebody filling the gap against the wrath of God, what I found is they are devouring lives. In other words, they're establishing a system which reduces human value and trivializes human life. It says they've taken treasure and precious things. The Hebrew here describes excessive taxation to support irresponsible spending. Do I have to connect the dots? They've devoured lives by establishing a system which reduces human value. They've taken treasure through excessive taxation to, to support irresponsible spending. And then it says they've made many widows. They've involved the nation in needless wars that don't belong to that nation. God said, I'm going to look in the place where I ought to be, ought to be able to find somebody Someone who stands accountable before me as leaders, as rulers, to set the direction, the course for an entire nation. I went and searched among their political leadership. And what I found was they were misusing their power. Okay. Well, we'll go somewhere else. It says in verse 26, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common, and they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have closed their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am defiled among them. Here he says, I'm going to search through her priests, but let me explain what that means. The priests were the teachers of the law. They were the scholars, the intellectual class. They were the academics. God said, I looked to the politicians and I didn't find anybody in the ruling class because they failed to use their power properly. So I'll look to the college campuses. I'll look among the intellectual elite, the scholars, the people who are charged to dis discover and, 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 and distribute truth. And what I found when I looked there was that they have done violence to my law. 
In other words, they've rewritten the Bible to accommodate modern lifestyle. He said, they make no distinction between the holy and the common. They have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. In other words, there's no separation between what's holy and what's profane. They have a refusal to teach such distinctions. Folks, we have a scholarly class, the intellectuals. And they have rewritten truth to, to pass on another agenda. Well, who does this, are we just talking about college professors? Listen, we live in the era of experts. For the last two years, we've been told over and over and over again on a variety of subjects, not just not just the pandemic, but, but, but we, we get this all the time. We're told, follow the science. Do you know what that means? What they mean is follow the experts. You see, the science doesn't even always back up what the experts are telling us. We now know that. We know that in a lot of ways over the last two years, the experts have had another agenda. They've lied to us about this or that. God said, I, I didn't find anybody among the politicians that were leading the, the people to truth, the, leading them in the way the nation should go. So I turned to the teachers. I turned to the intellectuals. I turned to the, the class of experts. Surely they have an influence. They have the ability to, to, to direct people in the right way, to help them think properly, to understand what's true. He says, but there I found that they... They've closed their eyes from my Sabbaths. In other words, they've dismissed the priorities of God and created a culture where personal recreation reigns supreme. This is the only verse that has an end result. It says, and I am defiled among them. It means that the experts have been teaching us things that result in a nation mocking the reputation of God. Well, if the politicians failed to use their power properly, the intellectual class has failed to use their instruction properly. God said, well, that's, that's okay. We'll, we'll look somewhere else. And so in verse 28, I mean, verse 27, he's going to turn to what I've called her public servants. Verse 27 says, her leaders within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to make dishonest profit. Now this word translated leaders, it, it really means government officials that are not part of the nobility. In other words, in our situation, it would mean bureaucrats. Not the elected political leaders, but, uh, but that class of, of people that, that at, at every level of government works to get the, uh, the, keep the wheels of the bureaucracy operating. Surely, politicians come and go. But among the bureaucrats, there should be somebody that sort of keeps the ship moving in the right direction. The day-to-day -day operations of government are in the hands of people who, who should be just making sure that we're not, we're not listing too far in either direction, but we're staying headed to the right destination. But he said, I looked there among the bureaucrats, and he compared the bureaucrats to wolves who are attacking and tearing their prey. 
They were supposed to serve people, but instead they turned people into victims of injustice. Frankly, they were willing to go along with whatever political agenda was in in vogue at the time in order not to jeopardize their influential positions. This is what I would call the I was just following orders class. Listen, every tyrant in the history of humanity, every tyrant in any nation at any point in history, they can only be a tyrant if there is an entire infrastructure of I'm just following orders people working for them. No tyrant can single-handedly take over a nation. But he has a structure of people. The Nuremberg trials following World War II, what was the classic defense of Nazi military officers and politicians that were brought to trial? I was just following orders. I, I was just in the army. I was just doing my job. Yeah? Well, guess what? God holds you responsible for doing your job when your job is moving in a direction away from truth and pushing people away from God. God said, I, I'm going to look among our princes, and all I found is that they were failing to use their power properly. So I looked among the intellectual class, and they were failing to use their instruction properly. So I'll look among their public servants, their bureaucrats. They're just interested in maximizing their own influence, their own positions, their own financial well-being. It says here they were destroying lives in order to make dishonest profit. You ever wonder how political service became so lucrative in our country? I mean, I'm not a huge, I'm not a great mathematician, but I can do math. And if you say I'm going to be a senator for 30 years, and I know what a senator makes every year. I can run those numbers. How do you make $200,000 a year for 30 years and come out with a bank account that's $57 million? Something else is going on. Something needs to be explained. Because I can do basic math. Here we have bureaucrats just following orders. And God said, I searched among them looking for just one man. And what I found was an entire class of people who failed to use their influence. Well, verse 28, surely, surely here. Verse 28, and her prophets have coated with whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, this is what the Lord God says when the Lord has not spoken. The word prophets here, he's talking about the preachers. He's talking about the pulpits of the land. Surely if I can't find a politician, if I can't find an intellectual, if I can't find a bureaucrat, surely I can find a preacher who will tell people the truth. But he said, I looked. I looked at, at, at what they did when they came to the temple. I looked at, at what they did when they spoke in the, in the villages. And all I saw were people who were whitewashing the seriousness of society's condition. They were using false visions and lying words, and they were claiming that they came from God. They avoided topics like sin and judgment in favor of prosperity and gladness, comfort and ease. Rather than being the moral conscience of a nation, they led people to destruction by teaching them that God was perfectly satisfied with them just the way they were. Listen, we hear this all the time in our culture. Listen, God loves you. 
He loves you just the way you are. Listen, I don't disagree with that statement as far as it goes. But when people say it, they're, they're, they're leaving unsaid the rest of it. See, God does love you just the way you are. But the implication, when they just stop right there, when they put a full stop, when they put a period, God loves you just the way you are, the implication is he's willing to leave you just the way you are. He loves you because you're okay with him. That's not the truth. God loves you just the way you are, not because you are okay, but because he created you and he loves you as a special individual creation that he did on purpose. The rest of that sentence doesn't have a period. It's not God loves you just the way you are. It's that God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much that he's not going to let you stay the way you are. He has better plans for you. He wants you to be something that you're not yet. And he's calling you to that. And he's providing what's necessary for you to move from where you are to where he wants you to be. We have preachers in the pulpits across our nation patting people on the head and telling them, you're just fine. You don't need to change. God doesn't expect anything from you except what you already have. He's good with you just the way you are. Here's the basic American sermon message today. All of your desires, no matter how wrong they might be, will be fulfilled. And all of your guilt, no matter how justified it is, is erased. That way, everybody can do his own thing. Nobody has any reason to question anybody else's actions. If anybody does question your actions, you just call them a legalist or a hater, and you send them on their way. You talk a lot about grace, as though God is a God of grace, but has no sense of justice or holiness in him. We see it show up in these kinds of statements. God wants me to be happy. I can't be happy married to her. So I'm leaving, but I know he'll understand. There was a time when what I'm doing might have been considered immoral, but not today. The Lord gave me this desire, and he wants me to enjoy it. Look, nobody's perfect, so I got in a little deeper than I planned. Sure, it's a little shady, but what's grace about anyway? Me? Ask for forgiveness? Listen, that's ridiculous. My relationship with God is much deeper than shallow techniques like that. Hey, if it feels good, have at it. Life's too short to sweat the small stuff. We're not under law, you know. Or this one. So what if it's a little hanky-panky, a little tease, a little fun and games? What's life without, without some spice and risk? All those thou shalt nots are really unrealistic. Well, what about these verses? 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. 
but like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, because I am holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from every form of evil. Romans 6, 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The simple fact of the matter is, we precisely reap what we sow. And if we sow a lifestyle that is more about comfort and ease and doing whatever we want, but is in direct disobedience to the revealed Word of God, we will reap disaster. And yet no one is telling us that. Rather than being the moral conscience of the nation, these preachers were leading people to destruction by teaching that God was okay with everything they did. If the politicians failed to use their power properly, the intellectuals failed to use their instruction properly, the bureaucrats failed to use their influence properly, Do we not live in a generation of preachers who fail to use their prophetic authority properly? I, I, this verse bothers me, obviously, because I'm, I'm in this class of preachers. Her prophets have coated with whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies, saying, this is what the Lord God says when the Lord has not spoken. You know, in the Old Testament... Being a false prophet was a capital offense. You could be executed for being a false prophet. So how do you know a false prophet? Well, it's very simple. Uh, a true prophet was right 100% of the time. Not 99% of the time, not 95% of the time. He was right 100% of the time. A false prophet had a mixed bag, of his, a mixed record. If you, were, if you said this is going to happen and you put the authority of God in that statement and that wasn't from God, then it didn't come true. You were a false prophet. You were executed. Now, here's the thing. They weren't executed because they issued a false prophecy. They were executed because they told a lie, but they attached the name and the reputation of God as an authority for that lie. You see, it's one thing to lie, but it's another thing to say, I swear by God. See, what you do, that's why, that's why perjury in court. Did you know perjury? You, you probably didn't know this. Do you know that perjury is one of the only crimes that can be charged all the way down to children? Because the idea is, if you understand the difference between a lie and the truth, why is perjury considered to be such a major crime because it subverts the very system of justice and it is a statement spoken with the authority of God behind those words do you swear to tell the truth the whole truth the mother truth hand on the bible I do you're putting the authority of God's word on your words that is a very dangerous thing I, I see video clips, I, I, I stumble across sermons occasionally, and I listen to preachers 
and they are saying something that is not even open for interpretation. They are saying something that is clearly opposite of what the Word of God says printed in black and white. And they explain away the Bible and lead you into something that, that is completely off base. And I think besides the ripple impact that you have in the lives of people who are listening to you, do you not understand that there is a moment when you stand before God and he says, I didn't say that, but you told the people I did. You used my name, my reputation to give authority to something that was not true. God takes that a little personally. And that's what he found. Surely among the preachers, somebody will be found who can stand in the gap for the nation. But no, they failed to use their prophetic authority. Well, that's okay. A little power corrupts. We understand that. We didn't find anybody among the politicians. We didn't find anybody among the intellectuals. We didn't find anybody among the bureaucrats or the preachers. But, but we'll look among the people. Surely there's an average Joe somewhere who's just doing what's right, who's just living for truth, who's, who's willing to stand in the gap on behalf of the nation. Verse 29, God says, The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy, and they have oppressed the stranger without justice. He looked among the people, and what he found was that they were leading lifestyles of flagrant sin in full view of God. They were extortioners, robbers, oppressors, inhospitable, subverters of justice. Society had become a showcase for violence, greed, corruption, indifference to suffering, neglect of God's word, sexual perversions, crime, lack of moral restraint, boldness in sin, loss of integrity, anger, hostility to others. He looked among the people trying to find even somebody there. And they were all living their own lives. You know, even those who are against these kinds of things seldom approach these behaviors as primarily anti-God. We are caught in a secularist worldview right now in our culture. And so even when you argue for certain positions, when you do it without God in the equation, you really, you really can't get where you think you can get to. See, for example, you can't hold a pro-life position if God is not in the mix. So uh, I know people who aren't Christians who hold a pro-life position. Yeah, maybe, but, but they're intellectually inconsistent. I mean, if God is not the creator of humanity, if we're the product of random, blind, evolutionary chance, if there's no meaning or significance, if right and wrong is just determined by what we each figure out for ourselves, if, if morality really is relative, then there's no standard by which right and wrong can be measured. I mean, you say, well, hey, listen, what's true for me doesn't have to be what's true for you. You live your way, I'll live my way. There's a book in the Bible called Judges where the people did just that. There was a cycle that says every man lived according to what was right in his own eyes. Here's two things about that. First of all, society can't survive that way. Society can't survive with everybody playing by different rules. That won't work. But secondly, 
it just doesn't functionally work right. I mean, if you say, listen, you make up what's right for you and I make up what's right for me. Okay, give me your car keys. You can't steal my car. Sure I can. It's what's right for me. Well, you shouldn't do that. No, no, no. See, once you use words like should, shouldn't, ought, ought not, see, you, you, you've given up the game then. Because you're appealing to a standard somewhere that says this is not right. But you've just told me there is no standard. We all make up our own rules. We all live by what's right for us. If we live by what's right for us, we can't survive. If you live by yourself on a deserted island, if you're the only one that lives there, you can do anything you want to. But the second somebody else washes up on that island and you have two people, all of a sudden, you have to have some rules. It's impossible for two people, much less 330 million people, to live any way they want. And yet we have preachers and politicians and bureaucrats and intellectuals that are all saying, listen, if you, if you want to pretend to be something that you're not, if you want to identify in some way that defies uh, biological reality, that's fine. We'll all be a part of the game. We'll all play in the same pretend world. But what's distinctly dangerous is the preacher class. They may be teaching the same things that the politicians and the academics are promoting, but when we do it, we're attaching the authority of the name of God to it, and that makes us even more guilty. God couldn't find anybody among the regular people. The regular people had failed to use their moral judgment. So God's search is futile. Look at the last two verses of the chapter. I searched for a man among them who would build up a wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found none. So I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have brought their way upon their heads, declares the Lord. It's interesting. You remember I read in those, those verses, the, those sections that we skipped over, and God kept saying, I, I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to destroy them. But he didn't. He didn't destroy them when they came out of Egypt. He didn't destroy them when they were in the wilderness. He didn't destroy them on the edge of the promised land. He said he was going to, but he didn't. Why? Well, let me show you. Flip over to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 23. The psalmist is talking about the exact same thing God is speaking through Ezekiel in chapter 22 of Ezekiel. In Psalm 106, verse 23, it says this. Well, let's start back a little earlier. Verse, 30, verse 21, speaking about Israel coming out of Egypt, they forgot God their Savior who had done them great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham and awesome things by the Red Sea. See, God had blessed them. He brought them out of slavery. He brought them across the Red Sea miraculously. He's reviewing all those good things. But then in verse 23, therefore he said that he would destroy them because they rebelled even in the midst of all those blessings. He said he would destroy them. If Moses, his chosen one, had not stood in the gap before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. 
They sinned coming out of Egypt, and he said, I'm going to let them go on their way. And Moses said, no, 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 you can't. These are your people. They cross over the Red Sea, and they sinned in the wilderness. And God said, I'm going to send them on their way without me. They're a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And, and Moses said, no, no, if you leave us, there's nothing different to distinguish us from everybody else. Moses pleaded with God. He stood in the gap, and God said, I'll go with you. Remember when they... Remember when they were on the edge of the promised land and they sent 12 spies in to, to check out the land so they could, they could have reconnaissance and they came back and there were two reports. There was a majority report and a minority report. The majority report was 10 spies. This is in the book of Numbers. And the 10 spies said, yeah, it, it really is a beautiful land, but we can't go because they've got giants in the land. Giants in the land. Did you hear me? Giants are in the land. And the people said, oh, oh, giants. We can't fight giants. There were two in given a minority report. They were, they were by name Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, we saw the giants. They're, they're there. But, but God, God is bigger than the giants. God told us we could do this. God's commanded us to go. God's got this. But the people said, no, no, no. They couldn't look past the giants to see God. And so the majority report was accepted. And they said, we're not going to go. And God said, okay. I'm going to let you wander around in the wilderness. I'm going to let you march around in circles for 40 years kicking up dust until a faithless generation that didn't trust God has all gone, passed off the scene. Joshua and Caleb didn't do anything wrong. But they still spent 40 years in the desert. Why am I telling you that? Because I'm convinced that churches right now are filled with people who are at ease saying, you know, God's going to judge all those sinners out there. He's going he's to bring hold America to account. But see, inside the room, inside the group, we're, we're doing good here. Do you not understand that Joshua and Caleb were innocent of the sin of Israel? But they got to spend 40 years in the desert because they were a part of the community of the nation. Folks, we're not immune from what's coming for America. And we got to be real careful about this attitude that just says, hey, we got ours. We got ours. We, we, you know, it's a shame what's going to happen to all those people. See, that's what they were doing in Jerusalem. They thought the exiles had been taken away. They said, well, those were the sinners. God, God's got all that, but, but, but we're good. The fact of the matter is, we've got to understand that, that what God is expecting of us is for us to do battle on behalf of, of our nation. How do we do that? Well, we do it with prayer. John Wesley said, God will do nothing but an answer to prayer. S.D. Gordon said, the greatest thing anyone can do for God and for man is to pray. He went on to say, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Prayer is not our last resort. It's our first line of defense. Ian Bounds, probably the greatest writer on prayer ever, said, God shapes the world by prayer. 
The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be, the mightier the forces against evil. The prayers of God's saints are the capital stock of heaven by which God carries on his great work upon the earth. God conditions the very life and prosperity of his cause on prayer. Now, it's not any news for me to tell you that we should be people of prayer. But I've got to tell you where God's been convicting me. Man, spending time in this passage, knowing that I'm in that preacher category, and thinking through this business about how you stand in the gap. Here's what I've realized about my own prayer life. I fight battles in prayer. By that, I mean I have a very specific agenda. I pray for my family, my wife, my kids, my grandkids. I pray for this church. I pray for the ministries that God has called us to. I pray for the the needs of people that are in this church. I pray for the influence that God gives us and, and the, the impact that, that comes on the lives of people that we have the, the privilege of crossing paths with. But here's the thing. I've become convicted that in my prayer life I'm fighting battles, but I'm not fighting the war. I'm fighting for those things that touch my life, that impact my comfort, that that are related to the way I want to live my life. I'm fighting battles. But I need to be fighting the war. You see, there's, there's a hole. There's a gap in the defenses that keeps evil at bay. And evil is pouring in every single day. I'm over here praying, Lord, keep my family safe from evil. I gotta be out there standing in the gap. I gotta be trying to stop evil. I have to speak the truth. I have to, I have to impact the lives of people in a way that, that helps them see, come alongside, join me. We gotta fill the hole in the wall. If we think that God's going to judge America and this country is just going to collapse, implode under the weight of its own sin, but that somehow our lives are just going to be untouched by that and we're just going to keep rocking along because we're the good people, we've got to remember the lesson of Caleb and Joshua. When judgment falls... And it is coming. When God says, I'm going to search systematically through a nation to see if there's anybody praying to hold off my wrath, interceding for the lives of a nation, will I find such a man Will I discover such a woman? Will there be such a church?
I was told a story recently about a man who owned a catfish farm. Now, if you don't know what that is, you go to a restaurant and, 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 and they'll feed you farm-raised catfish. It's a, it's, a, it's a place where catfish are, are born and bred and raised up and then sold, and, and, uh, and, and, and there's a whole process to it. And I've done this a couple of times. I've done it in a trout farm. I've done it in a catfish farm. You can go to these places, and you can take tours. And in this story, there was a woman on the tour, and, and the guy was taking her through the, the different stages with, with a group, and, and she looked down, and, and there was a tank, and, and the catfish were just still, just on the bottom. They weren't swimming around or anything. And she said, she said, they, they look dead. He goes, well, they're not dead. He said, but, but a farm-raised catfish, see, they know they're going to get fed. I mean, they literally know that if I just sit here long enough that at the right time, food is literally going to drift down upon me and I'm just going to be able to eat. He said, let me show you what we do to, to exercise them a little bit. He walks over and he releases a, a little gate and lets a small barracuda into the tank. Well, guess what happened? Catfish came alive. They started moving. They started, they started going. Now, the barracuda didn't stay in the tank all the time. But he gets in there occasionally and kind of stirs things up. Let me tell you something. If you're content to just come to church, just hear a sermon, just get some encouragement from people and then go on about your business... In a sense, if you're a catfish that's so used to being fed that you're just sitting on the bottom of the tank and that's your life, you're just soaking it up. Do you know every now and again, God's not mad at you. He's not angry with you. He's not punishing you. But every now and again, he lets a barracuda into your tank. Why? To get you back into the game. To quit sitting on the floor being spoon fed. To exercise your faith. To fight the war. To be involved in what's happening. I don't know what you're going through right now. Maybe I do, but, but certainly not for everybody in this room. But whatever it is, could it possibly be that God's just allowed a little barracuda into your tank? to sort of stir your waters and get you going, instead of just sitting back, soaking in all the blessings that he has for you, he's ready for you to exercise some faith. He's ready for you to take your prayer life to another level. Quit fighting little battles and start joining in fighting the war. You talk to people about Jesus? You invite people to join you in church? Do you care about the nations who have never heard the name of Jesus? You pray for any missionaries that are living by faith while they leave their comfort zone to go to places that you and I don't want to go to? Are, are you in the war? If you're not, a little barracuda might be the best thing that could happen to you. God said, I'm just looking for one man, one woman, one church. To recognize 
that this flood of evil in our day is coming through a gap in our walls. And we need to redeploy from our comfort zones to the gap because that's where the battle is raging. Will that be a people called Evergreen? I'm a Christian before I'm an American. But I'm an American by the sovereign decision of God, which means I have a responsibility to bring the, the influence of the kingdom to the application of my nation. Will we stand in the gap? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, nothing I've said here is for you yet. But I need to tell you this. If you don't know God, if you are, are separated from God by your sin, let me tell you something. I wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you the wrath of God is headed toward you like a freight train. But the good news of the gospel is there is a man named Jesus Christ who stepped into the gap and took the wrath of God so you wouldn't have to. If you accept his work in your place, God has a whole life, a whole eternity that he wants to offer to you. But if you say, no, I'm good. I got this. I'll handle my own life. Okay. Okay. That wrath, though, you are stuck on a track with a train barreling down. Please, please consider what Jesus has offered you, what he's done for you. In just a moment, we're going to sing. We're not going to be here very much longer. But when we sing, if you don't know Jesus, come meet the man who has, stayed, who has already stood in the gap of God's wrath to protect you so that you could have a new life. We'd love to introduce you to him. If you're already a follower of Jesus, maybe it's time for us to make our way to our hands and knees and just say, Lord, I, I've been fighting battles, but I've got to fight the war. I've got to redeploy my thoughts, my prayers to the gap because my nation is falling to pieces around me. And I've been content to just say, well, it doesn't really impact me. Yes, it does. Why are you here? Because God put us here and gave us responsibility for the nation in which he sovereignly placed us. Has he stirred your tank recently? Has he, has he got you stirred up a little bit? Do you have a little bit of desperation in your life? Because that desperation is intended to drive us to our knees because that's where we win fights. That's where we win battles. That's where we win the war. Come find your way right here. When you kneel down, this place becomes holy ground. Present yourself to the Father. Say, I, I don't know. I don't know who else it's going to be. But I will take on the nation in my prayer life. And if nobody else does it, Lord, find in me a person who will stand in the gap 
Do you pray with your family? Do you call them out to ask God? We got to quit singing God bless America. We got we got to start to say God change America. Nobody else is going to pray that prayer except God's people. Well, you stand in the gap. He's looking, searching for just one. Let it be me. Let it be you. Father, in this moment, we are we are a bit overwhelmed by your word. By what it means to be the people of God in a nation that does not acknowledge God. Father, forgive us for our apathy and our indifference. Convict us of our laziness. Prayer is a difficult thing for many of us, but Father, it's only difficult because the consequences of it are so powerful. The enemy will do anything he can to keep us from praying. Father, we must have hearts committed to this fight. Lord, forgive us as a nation. We've never been perfect, but Father, we are we are spitting in your face every day. And churches are filled with people who shake their heads and cluck their tongues. But we're not standing in the gap. Lord, as a people of faith in exile, let us pray for the nation around us. And oh God, hear our prayers. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.